Hi, and welcome to Bread. Our current series is on the book of Genesis. It's uh, going back to the start, not because that's where we're heading, but it is where we've come from, spiritually and cosmically, if not historically. The Bible is clear. We've left Eden. We're not going back. Instead, we're heading for heaven, which is not some fluffy, cloud, harp playing, white sheet wearing place up in the sky. It's a glorious city of wonder and abundance and redemption here on earth and forever into eternity. Heaven is not Eden, but it does share many of its defining characteristics. So we're going back to the start, not to return, but to see where we've come from so that we might know better where we're going and how to get there. Enjoy. Amen. Hello, everyone. Very nice to see you all. Um, have a seat. Uh, thanks, guys. That was uh, lovely. We are beginning a new series today uh, on the first three chapters of Genesis. And this is uh, some of the most famous, most beautiful, debated, meaningful literature, not just in the Bible, but in the whole of human history, I think it's fair to say. And the narrative action obviously uh, features God's pre-existence, the creation of the universe, the first humans, how God interacts uh, with the world that he's created, the origins of evil and sin, and a detail that many are not familiar with, a flaming sword not held by any hands, but just flashing to guard the tree of life. Did you know that? Like something from Zelda. There it is. And of course, there's lots of meaning packed into all of this, which we're going to explore over the coming weeks. Uh, and we're calling this series uh, Back to the Start. But at the outset, let me just clarify something. It's about going back to the start, not because that's where we're heading but it's the, because that's where we're from, spiritually and cosmically, if not historically. The Bible is clear. We've left Eden. We're not going back. We're heading for heaven instead, which is not some sort of fluffy cloud, harp-playing, white-sheet-wearing tedium up in the sky. It's actually this glorious city of wonder and abundance and redemption here on earth, and also eternally, forever and ever and ever. Now, heaven is not Eden, but it does share many of its defining characteristics. So we're going to go back to the start, not to return, but to see where we've come from, so we might better know where we're going and how to get there. Make sense? Good. So let us begin at the beginning. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Just two verses to get us started. Here, thanks to my able assistant Raoul, is a picture of earth from Mars. Can you see it? It's that little dot. Can we zoom in? See it now? A bit further? Sorry, I just lost my place. 
So that's how small it is. There he is. Can we go back to the zoomed out one without the thing? Have you got the one without any stuff on it? <laughs> I'm being trolled by Raoul. Is that a no? Okay, so there it is. Tiny little earth. Raoul, you're fired. Uh, that's five oceans, seven continents, 195 countries, 37,000 branches of McDonald's, 3 billion smartphone users, 8 billion people producing 70 million cars every single year, 23 billion pairs of shoes every year, 650 billion cans of Coke every year. But look, we're tiny. The nearest that Mars has ever been to Earth is 35 million miles away. It would take a Boeing Dreamliner 32 years to fly to Mars. So if I went down to LAX now, got on a plane to Mars, I wouldn't get there until I was about 50. <laughs> and Mars is our nearest planet. Our sun is just one of around 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. 200 billion suns. And there are more than 170 billion galaxies. We are so small. Look at us. Do we actually even matter? Why are we here again? Why? is the question that Genesis seeks to answer. The issue, though, is it's rarely the question people tend to ask, at least to start with, of this book. When the Genesis account of creation is discussed, the question that most often comes up is, is that really how the world began? How long did it take again? Seven days, seven periods of 24 hours. What about the Big Bang and evolution and dinosaurs and everything else? When Hannah was at Sunday school, she suddenly asked a question, what about dinosaurs? Because it had suddenly dawned on her, what about dinosaurs? And the person teaching the Sunday school class said, you deceitful, terrible child, leave. If that's someone's answer to your question, you've probably hit a nerve. But a little bit of background before we get into the question of why and how. So the book of Genesis was put together around five or six hundred years before Jesus. Almost certainly while the Israelites were in exile in Babylon. And this is an important point and I'll come back to it in a minute. But the book is basically a composition of four different sources. Some written, some passed down orally. The oldest one is from the 12th century BC, probably during David or Solomon's reign. Sorry, I keep going right and I should be going down. Um, and the latest source is probably 600 years later from the Babylonian exile period. So it's this kind of melting pot of stories and traditions spanning six centuries. And these were put together to give a sense of historical and spiritual context to the contemporary life of the Jewish people as they were in exile in Babylon, ruled by a foreign power. Because everyone needs to belong to a story. You need to belong to a story. I need to belong to a story. 
when uh, people are checking out the church and come here and sort of, you know, maybe um, wondering what we're doing here and trying to find out whether they want to belong, what they nearly always do is ask Hannah and me a little bit about our story, why we're here. Now, we could just give them some bullet points. We really value authenticity. You know, we like to teach the Bible. These sorts of things. We love hummus. The, those things kind of tell you a little bit about what we're trying to do. But it's hard to necessarily buy it. Who doesn't think church should be authentic? <laughs> I'm looking for a really fake church. <laughs> but when we tell our story, then people can find out whether they want to belong. That we were part of a church that really revolutionized what both of us had grown up with when it came to Christianity. That this was something that people really believed. That it was intellectually credible. That there was an authenticity to the way in which people looked at the Bible. There was questioning, but also there was huge faith. And the power of the Spirit was there every Sunday. And people were healed. And lives were changed, and we could see the kingdom that Jesus talked about actually there. And it made us think, that is what we want to be part of. And we became part of it. And then the more time we spent there, the more we felt God was calling us to go and share that with other people. And we'd been to L.A. once before, and I hated it. But we felt like God was calling us here. And so we came. And we had neither a wing nor a prayer. We actually did have quite a lot of prayer. It's all we had. But this is what we've come to do. So you're brought into the story. And if, if it's your story, great. If it's not your story, God bless you. Find another church. There are lots of great churches. But we all want to be part of a story. Everyone's looking for one. To make sense of their life and their position in the world. Why do people dress similarly? Why do people speak with the same phrases? Why do people even pretend to like things that they don't like? like Drake. Why? Because we all want to fit in. We all want to belong to something bigger. After school, I left um, for a sort of year out before I went to university. And I traveled to New Zealand and Micronesia and visited some beautiful islands, did some amazing diving. But because I was on my gap year and with the people I was traveling with, they all had little beards and little kind of goatee beards because it was 1998. And I couldn't grow a little beard, but I tried because I wanted to fit in. So I had a little tiny little beard here, um, which wasn't much of a beard, but I tried. I visited some beautiful, beautiful places. There was one point where we were on this kind of white sanded beach in the island of Yap, which Basically, the only white people there were divers, and that was about it. White sandy beach, no one around. And we found a 10-foot tiger shark washed up on the beach. Didn't smell, so we took it home and we barbecued it. This is amazing. My record of that, though, is of photos of me with this stupid little beard, totally ruining the whole experience. But I grew it because I wanted to belong. We all want to belong to something. And even those of us who don't conform to anything, we're just belonging to a smaller, more self-related story, aren't we? After all, punks, the archetypal non-conformists, they all dress exactly the same. 
Now, the Christian claim, of course, is that there is one overarching universal cosmic story. It's the story of God and his relationship with humankind. And we're all supposed to be part of it because it's all what we're actually made for. And without it, we're going to be searching for it in the shadows, bouncing from one incomplete, unsatisfactory version to another. But the more we're able to give ourselves to the story, the more we will actually be fulfilled and satisfied at the deepest level. Because rather than being a story of conformity and sameness, God's story, the story of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a story, yes, of belonging, but belonging individually and personally. God invites us not to say, I want to make you like everyone else, but to say, I want to make you like you with purpose and meaning and family and identity because you're fearfully and wonderfully made. So why this story exists, not how, is really the point of Genesis chapters 1 to 3. And the first part of the answer of this question, why we are here, is this. In the beginning, God created. There is a God. He's a creator. And creators create creation. They can't help themselves. God is a creator. Enuma Elish is a, the first um, ever recorded uh, story of creation. It's a Babylonian myth that was found um, a few hundred years ago, uh, discovered uh, from the 12th century BC. And in this creation myth, creation happens as a sort of accident. It results from this war between two rival gods. And really, humankind, everything we see is an afterthought in this myth. And the same is actually true of many other ancient creation accounts. Creation arises as some sort of um, fluke out of primordial, watery deep. It's a bit random. And these stories of warring gods are told from a viewpoint that the world is random, chaotic even, and that we are the whim of these ambivalent gods. Any moment, anything could happen. Something spectacular and something awful and terrible. We just don't know. We're completely out of control. And the world is basically one big, hot mess. But what these ancient accounts, and indeed every other contemporary religious variation say, is effectively, this world that we see around us, it doesn't really matter. It isn't real. It's just a bit of an illusion. What we're trying to do is get beyond that, out of it, escape. Because the body is actually a prison of our soul. Our bodies don't matter. It's just what's going on in our heart. So the human purpose is to flee. So we don't really need to waste our time on scientific research. That's not that important. This world and all of it is going to pass away. We've got to get out. You never get any social justice. No point looking after refugees. Because what's important is about their souls and your souls and nothing else. No need to fight slavery or racism or poverty or climate change. We're just trying to get away. The material, absolutely nothing. And of course, unfortunately, Christians can be guilty of thinking and teaching this sort of stuff too. What Genesis 1 to 3 says is absolutely not. It is a direct polemic, in fact, against these sorts of myths. Creation is not an accident. You are not an afterthought. 
you're not a mistake. The world is here for you to enjoy and embrace and nourish and treasure and love. Because it started with a creator who created creation. Everything we see around us is the result of the abundant graciousness of God. It's beautiful and it's good. Which means you are too. It is for you. And there is a plan. So why did God create? Why did life begin? Because he couldn't help himself. And in these early chapters of Genesis, they are not some sort of myth describing the cosmic behavior of a far-off God. He is not distant and removed. But that doesn't mean that Genesis is therefore to be read uh, just strictly and flatly as a piece of forensic history, just because it was never intended to be. It's not there to give the details. For example, in the two accounts of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, there seem to be quite big contradictions here. The first one says that, for instance, mankind, male and female, were made together on the sixth day. The second account doesn't mention days at all, but rather Adam is created first, and then God sees that Adam, uh, it's not good for Adam to be alone, and then Eve is created afterwards. Now, which one is historically correct? And when the author was compiling these together, these two stories, did he not think, wait a second, this might be a bit confusing, having two stories that say slightly contradictory things, which one should I put in? But he didn't, because the point of Genesis is not the how, but the why. And these early chapters of Genesis are neither fantastical myth nor scientific history. Instead, they are pieces of poetry. It's a song about creation. It's a piece of art. And art always is concerned with deeper meaning than just how questions. After all, no one goes to the theater to see how Hamlet killed Claudius. Oh, he used a sword, a poisonous sword. That's the bit I'm interested in. I wonder how big the sword is and where the sword went. In his head, in his eye, in his back, all the sword. You go to the theater to see why Hamlet killed Claudius, what drives him, his revenge and his betrayal and his sense of honor. And in fact, historical accuracy is such a secondary concern to the author that there is an apparent contradiction right here in these very first two verses. On the one hand, we have in the beginning God, before everything else, pre-existent, as the writers of the New Testament pick up on. He is the one who creates out of nothing. Before him, there was nothing. He is the Alpha. And yet, verse 2, before God creates, the earth was empty. Empty, yes, but it was still there, apparently. There was darkness, yes, but the darkness was over the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So is he creating from nothing, ex nihilo, or is he creating from something? Well, the very ambiguity is there on purpose. We don't need to choose between them, just as the author does not. They both reveal something fundamental about our creator. In the case of him creating out of nothing, we see his exclusive power. Who can make something from nothing? No one but the omnipotent God of the universe. Later in the chapter, the writer records, God made two great lights, 
The greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. And then in almost a kind of throwaway line, he says, and he also created the stars. All 200 billion of them just in this galaxy. All 170 billion galaxies. He created the stars, and yet we've domesticated him into a little figure of Jesus sitting on our dashboard. God is omnipotently powerful. He's our friend, and yet he flung the stars into space in a moment. A friend of mine is an um, artist, and he was um, in his studio in London casting a bronze uh, bird in flight. And he'd been working on this for, for ages and ages, and he, he had what he thought was perfect, perfect bronze looking like it was flying. And then in his studio, he'd left the window open, and a horrible little London pigeon just swooped down and sat on the windowsill and then swooped off again. And he said, in that moment, I realized all my work was nothing, nothing compared to this. The beauty of a bird in flight, even one of the most disgusting, I think we can all agree, of God's creation. Because God creates out of nothing. And it's extraordinarily powerful. So do you think, let's make it personal for a second, whatever you might be going through right now, just as a point of logic, he has the power to overcome. Now, of course, we always don't always see him answers our prayers in the way that we want him to. But this isn't to take away what Genesis 1 says, which is God is so powerful. He can do extraordinary things. So he creates ex nihilo, but he also importantly creates from chaos. And here we see the redemptive power of God. Even the things that are lost, even the things that seem broken forever, too tainted, too dirty, too hopeless, too forever gone, can be recreated into something beautiful by the hand of our God. Now, almost certainly, these two verses come from the latest of the four sources, the one written during the Babylonian exile. And this is important because that period of Israel's history represents the nadir of the experience of the people of God. There was nothing worse for them. Having finally escaped the tyranny of slavery in Egypt, having been delivered and wandered through the desert and the wilderness, finally making it to the promised land, finally going, this is what we have been waiting for. This is where goodness and light will flow. This is the land of milk and honey. This is where we can be the people of God and we can bless every nation around us. Having done that and seen the rule, the glorious rule of David and Solomon, and then every king getting slightly worse and worse and worse, finally taken by the Babylonians, conquered and the temple destroyed, and taken into exile. 
it does not get worse. And so it's in this context we have this. The earth, formless and empty, literally the language means total chaos. The word is used most um, usually for a sort of untracked desert place, somewhere where no one would ever want to go, but sometimes people get lost and die in. It's a place of waste. And add to that the picture of darkness in the next sentence. Darkness covering this chaos. Darkness is the antithesis of God. God is light, and in him comes life. But darkness is where things in the shadows breed evil and destruction. And what the author is saying is he's identifying with his original audience, and he's saying we are in the deepest of waters. In fact, we're drowning. It's a struggle to keep our heads up above the water. We're going to try and keep our children above and our spouses above and the ones that we love above, but we don't know how much longer we do this because the water is creeping up and we are feeling trapped and we are going under. But in this, what Genesis says is we know. We're in this too. But the Spirit of God is hovering. Just as he hovered over the chaos before, he's hovering now and he's here to bring beauty and order and goodness out of chaos. I'm sure there are people feeling a little bit like that today. When Hannah and I were planning to come here to plant this church, we had um, good legal advice saying, our visa would take nine months max, absolutely max. Could be three, could be six, but nine months max. So at eight and a half months, we went, oh, great, we'll be going in half a month. So it's Christmas time. It's a good year to, um, a good time to take the kids out of school. Why don't we uh, rent out our place in London? Uh, so we've got all that tied up. We'll put our stuff into storage, and then over Christmas, the visa will definitely come, and then we'll just go to uh, Los Angeles, and it'll be great. Uh, and then in July, we had had to put our kids back into another school. We had lived with in 17 different houses. We'd moved 27 times. I didn't have anything to do. I built a bed. I don't know why. Um, we were really, really struggling. How is this happening? Have we made a horrible mistake? Our kids didn't know why we'd left London. We didn't know why we'd left London. We spent quite a lot of time living with my mother, who I love. <laughs> but, you know, five of us in her home for a long time, it was difficult. 27 moves, 17 different houses. It was July, and we thought, we can't do this anymore. So we booked a holiday to Italy, and on the final day of the holiday in Italy, um, we set an alarm for the flight back home. And the alarm went off at the right time. We woke up at the right time. We had two and a half hours to get to the airport. It's going to be fine, apart from the flight was an hour and a half earlier than we thought it was. And so we're like, hmm, we've got to drive through Naples in about 20 minutes during rush hour. It'll be fine. 
we threw everything into the car. We drove. Sat-nav told us not to go the way that everyone was going because there was traffic. So go this little route. And we went, great, Sat-nav knows the little route. We went into a street. I'm not joking. It was about as, as wide as this aisle. But it got progressively narrower the further we drove down it. So we were driving, and then both sides of the car just went... And then Margot, our youngest, vomited everywhere. It was fine. A very nice Belgian man decided to kind of direct traffic and help us out. We got out. We drove very, very, very fast. Don't do that. Uh, to the airport with both sides of the car completely scratched. I dropped Hannah and the kids off at the airport, and the car rental was miles away. So I drove it there. I just left it in the parking. I still don't know what happened to that car. I just left it there. I asked the person, how do I get back to the airport? She said, there's a bus. If you know anything about Italian buses, there isn't a bus. So I ran. I ran and ran and ran and ran. There's a very nice British Airways woman holding my boarding pass there. Got on the flight, got back. We went, oh, like this. Got home. Back to my mum's house. And it suddenly dawned on us. We still don't know what we're doing. Are we ever going to get this visa? Hannah just broke down. She went to the supermarket. She was in the aisles. I know this is LA where you're allowed to express emotion. You're not in the UK. Definitely not in a public place or a supermarket. But Hannah's just there crying in the aisles. Everyone giving her a very wide berth. She comes back and I said, oh, you've just got to go to bed. So she goes up to bed, and then I heard a scream. I thought, honestly, I don't know how much more I can take. My first thought is someone is dying, someone's died, someone's got cancer. How, how bad could it be? That's my first thought. But then I hear another scream, which is not the scream of anguish, but the scream of joy, because Hannah's just got an email to say we've got the visa. It was amazing. But I identify if you feel like the waters are too high, if everything is chaos. The Babylonian exile lasted for around 75 years. Countless Israelites would have been born, grown up, died, knowing only captivity, knowing only that things were not as they were supposed to be. The Babylonian gods seemed to have control over the future, they had appeared to defeat the God of Israel. But Genesis says to a despairing nation and says to all of us right here that the dreams of our God have not been extinguished. The one true God, the God of Israel, is the Lord of life. This is the affirmation of this creation song of faith. God can be trusted. Even when everything around us is telling us there is no hope, God can be trusted in the face of every case of sickness, in every case of poverty, every case of unemployment, of loneliness, every possible example of human experience of abandonment. God can be trusted. That is what the Bible says. 
because the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. He's only described like this in one other place in Deuteronomy. It's like this powerful, protective, ready, hovering eagle protecting its young. That is the Spirit of God for you. We love to make Genesis about us. We'll concentrate on Adam and Eve. That's what we tend to do. What did they do wrong? That's what we want to know because we're so self-related. But this book is not really about them at all. It's about they're the object. The subject is in the beginning God. And what it says is let God be God again. Let him into the chaos. What the original audience would do, the prophets of old would call people back to him calling them back to him. Let us return to the Lord and then he will deliver us. That was their hope. For us, and I'll end with this, our hope isn't really hope. It's much deeper than that. It's actually expectation. Because our hope is built on not what we do, on not whether we are good enough. Our hope is built on what Paul describes as the new Adam. The last Adam. The one who reversed all the chaos. All the brokenness that came into creation. Who died on the cross so that we could be set free back into what we are intended for. So ours isn't really hope. It's expectation of something that has already happened already been completed, already done. And what it has meant is that that same spirit hovering over the waters right at the beginning, before time even began, is ours now, here and now. I will ask the Father, Jesus says to his disciples, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. That same infinitely power, powerful spirit, he is here right now. He is the breath of the Almighty, he is the counselor and the comforter for those who need comfort. He's the spirit of might. He's the spirit of adoption and grace and knowledge and truth, of life and understanding and wisdom. He's the spirit of healing. He's the spirit of restoration. The spirit of the Father, the spirit of the Son. He is the third person of the Trinity. He's outgoing, he's outreaching to us in love, and it's in his dimension of life that we are called so that we might experience everything from God. Creation out of nothing, chaos reverted. So why don't you put your trust in Jesus once more? That song, it's quite easy to sing. You're my portion. You're all I need. Take my hands. Take my thoughts. Take my questions. Easy to sing. Quite a thing to mean. Now, of course, we are all mixed bags. Our motives are split. We're never fully pure in anything that we do, I'm sorry to say. 
That's just the truth. It is what it is to be human. However, the more that we can actually put our hands in the life of the living God, the more he can take over and redeem it all. The more he can lift us up. Because you have purpose and meaning. You have things in this world that no one else can do. All he's asking is to put your life in his hands. So simple. So that he can recreate anything that's been lost in you and bring things out of you that you never knew were there for his glory and for your goodness. That is the first two verses of Genesis. There is a creator. He is the God. And you mean everything to him. Amen.